Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 43 of Unknown Orbits, Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. In our story today, a fleet of giant spaceships park over major world capitals... That's something I think we've seen in the movies. Certainly, we're all familiar with. But as far as I know, this is the first time that image was used in a science fiction story. I always wonder with Eastern European nations if they have their own version where the giant invading alien fleet parks their ship over their capital city. Well, of course. But, you know, to be fair, I think Independence Day did spread it around the world a bit. That was a nice change. So these giant spaceships park and shortly thereafterward communicate to mankind, not in person. They initially hide themselves inside the spaceship, but they communicate with Earth to let them know that they are not there to conquer or subjugate mankind, but to protect them from themselves. Following that, in a short period of time, war and hunger are abolished and a new golden age of humanity is ushered in, where everyone is taken care of, there's peace, and everyone's very happy. These invaders are called the overlords, and they say they are only going to stay as long as necessary to complete their mission, but don't explain exactly what their mission is and what will constitute completion of that mission. So there is initially some feeble resistance to their rule, but it's quickly overcome peacefully for the most part by the overlords. And we flash forward to a century later, suddenly all over the world, the children of Earth, anyone under the age of 15, begin to exhibit psychic powers, kind of like the village of the damned. So you got a whole world filled with millions of village of the damned children, And as this emerges, and as these children begin to show sometimes frightening abilities, the overlords finally reveal the truth, which is that they themselves are servants of something called the Overmind, a cosmic entity that is connecting with the children of Earth and is developing them and luring them to shed their physical bodies and become part of this cosmic entity, the Overmind. And it's revealed that the overlords are incapable genetically of making this transformation, which is why the overmind chose them to be their servants. So they're doomed, and there's a certain amount of sadness in the story, which I found to be commendable, that this race knows they're never going to achieve this high evolutionary leap that all these other races around the galaxy that they encounter develop. But the downside for the human race is that 
once the children transform and leave the earth, that's the end of the human race because there's no more children. There's no one to propagate the human race. The human race is doomed. As soon as all of the adults die off, that's the end. The human race is gone. But it's not the end of the human race. It's the graduation of the human race from well, this form to the next. The human race as we know it, yes. Yeah. But as far as Earth goes, Earth becomes a ghost planet, basically. At the end of the book, there's a character who escaped Earth decades earlier. Like a stowaway? Yeah, it was a stowaway on the Overlord spaceship going back to their home world. And because they were traveling at or near the speed of light, there was the time dilation that occurred. So he was gone for like 20 years his time. It was like 100 years Earth time. And he comes back and he's the only our type of human being left on the entire planet. And the planet's dead. The end. So it's kind of a downbeat ending. But I really like the whole concept of the... Uh, overlords overseeing this transition going from planet to planet race to race and overseeing this transition and then the transition winding up killing off the previous incarnation of that particular species and we should probably throw in a little bit of a spoiler here the overlords look like devils that's yes. one of the shocking reveals which probably was more shocking back in the day than it might be today i remember when reading this in high school a big point made was the fact that they looked like devils, but weren't. They, right. they were actually very kind beings. They knew what was going to happen to the human race, and they felt bad about it, but they had a job to do. Yeah. What they were trying to do was make the transition as painless as possible. There was this point, I remember, are these beings from whom we get the idea of the devils? Right, right, that there's some race memory yeah. that they had visited us previously. or I don't remember whether they answered that question in the novel. I think they raised it, but I don't remember it being resolved. It's almost distracting to make it any more than a small detail. Yeah, yeah, it certainly wasn't critical to the story. So this was expanded from a short story, Guardian Angel, which was originally published in New Worlds magazine, winter of 1950. It was a British science fiction magazine that apparently turned into an anthology series later in its life. I've always felt when a magazine did that, and there have been three or four, that it was due to financial problems and they're just trying to stay in a business. Inevitably, the series ends after not too long. Yeah, I do remember seeing one or two anthologies of New World. That's a title that's vaguely familiar to me. And I don't know, was it they anthologized primarily British science fiction writers or all science fiction writers? That I don't know. I don't remember. I have some copies of The New Worlds, and I bet you would recognize the covers, because I did. Yeah. They were paperback format, sold in the U.S., and I remember a very shiny kind of disco version of The New Worlds logo on one cover. I'll have to look that up just to see if that rings a bell with me. So Clark is considered one of the big three. He, Heinlein, and Asimov. They are the pinnacle of science fiction, at least in terms of the popular view of science fiction, that they're the big three. He was named a grandmaster by the Science Fiction Writers of America, deservedly so. He was a lifelong member of the British Interplanetary Society, going back to his teenage years, I believe. 
he had degrees in mathematics and physics, so he fits the mold of the very, very smart science fiction writer that we've been talking about all this time. And he is given credit for being the first person to realize that geostationary orbits for satellites were possible, which some people said was not possible. It was a point that was argued for many years. Some people thought that was not possible. He was one of the advocates who not only claimed that it was possible, but showed how it could be done. Without geostationary satellites, we wouldn't have cell phones. We wouldn't have half the technology that we have today. He was one of the people who was responsible for promoting that. So like a lot of science fiction writers at the time, maybe not a lot, but a number of writers, Clark shifted over, at least partially, to writing nonfiction in the 1950s. And it was science-based and often related to the exploration of space. He and Asimov and a few others, they adopted sort of a veneer of academia where they were playing out the role of the wise man of science fiction, you know, who had an insight into the future that they wanted to share with the masses, which was important, I think, at the time to help not only popularize science fiction, but to give science fiction an air of more legitimacy. But also, the most important part of this was to help popularize the idea of having a space program. The idea of the science fiction writers having a special view of the future, doesn't that come from Campbell and most of those same writers in the 40s? I'm thinking of some letter that Isaac Asimov wrote about science and science fiction. That was certainly part of Campbell's agenda, was to position science fiction as the predictors of the future. That was why he deliberately, and we talked about this in a previous episode, oh, yeah. deliberately published a story detailing to some degree the technical aspects of the atom bomb, which wound up getting him under the attention of and scrutiny of the FBI. So that was a provocative thing on his part to try to make a point. He was right, but he was trading on information that was publicly available, and I would say most physicists and other similar scientists of the era were probably already familiar with this information. So it wasn't something that he himself was brilliant in uncovering. He just was able to tap into a vein of knowledge that was there on the science side. So yes, as the world emerged into the atomic age in the late 1940s into the 50s, the idea that you had these world-killing bombs, potentially, that had been developed by science, meant that what else could be developed by science? So the idea of space travel was one of those things that was elevated during this period of time. Now, just about everybody in the science fiction field who was working was writing stories, popularizing the idea of space travel. But there were a handful of people who were actively collaborating with the government or actively lobbying the public on the idea of the feasibility of space travel and the desirability of, of space travel. There's a quote I found while I was doing a little research for this from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction that said, space flight is the classic theme of science fiction, which is probably true. I mean, I, I might put time travel up there close to it. The very earliest stories 
the kind of proto science fiction stories in the what 1700s trip to the yeah, moon that yeah. kind of I thing mean, they're all space trips oh yeah you, you go all the way back to the beginnings of science fiction and there was always a escaping the earth and traveling to the moon or mars or whatever so one of the people we can point to is not exactly a science fiction writer but he was a science writer willie lay willie lay was a german immigrant who had been involved in the 1920s with fritz lang and others there was a movie made in 1928 or 1929 der frau in the moon the woman in the moon which was a bunch of German scientists and science enthusiasts made a movie about a trip to the moon, which was highly scientifically predictive. It actually had a lot of technology in it that was later adapted in part by our space program, our Apollo program. In fact, it was so revolutionary in a way that the Nazis seized all the prints of the movie and put them in a vault during the war with fear that it might leak out to the West and give them a leg up on, on their rocketry and bomb programs. So Willie Lay, once he emigrated to the United States, he wrote some very influential and important books. The first one was Conquest of Space in 1949, and that was important because it included paintings from the renowned artist Chesley Bonestall. Now, if any of you can think back to the 1950s and the old paintings of men walking on the moon in spacesuits and rocket ships flying out of Earth, the shiny, pointy, with tail fins spaceships, that, to a large degree, came from Chesley Bonestall. He was the illustrator of space throughout the 1950s into the 1960s. Was Conquest of Space the basis for an early movies similar to Destination Moon. I think all he did is they took the title. I think they only took the title from that book and didn't credit Willie Lay. If I recall correctly, Conquest of Space was not a very good piece of science fiction. Uh, that was the one I think that was rushed into production to beat another movie that we're going to talk about here, Destination Moon. Destination Moon was written by Robert Heinlein, of all people. He was heavily involved. And again, Chesley Bonestall was the artist who did the matte paintings and the production design for that movie. That was a highly acclaimed, fairly good science movie produced by George Powell, who we've talked about his previous works, When Worlds Collide, War of the Worlds in the 1950s. So it was about as accurate a movie as you can get for the time. And it was hugely popular. It was a box office hit. And that was in 1950, so that really helped kick off the whole science fiction craze of the 1950s. It helped to popularize in the, in the popular imagination the idea of space travel and what it would look like and what it would feel like. So you had Willie Lay, Robert Heinlein, and then at the same time, Arthur C. Clarke was writing books like Interplanetary Flight, An Introduction to Astronautics, 1950, The Exploration of Space, 1951, and that book years later, was used by Werner von Braun, the famed German rocket scientist that we snatched up at the end of World War II, who wound up helping direct our space program. He used that book by Clark to convince President Kennedy that we could go to the moon. So Clark had a very direct influence on an important development in the space program, starting the moon program. 
that's just a couple of people who were directly involved. I think I overlooked the Wide World of Disney episode, Man in Space, 1955. Why is that familiar? That's a very famous episode where Disney worked again with Chesley Bonestall and Willie Lay to make sort of a dramatization of men going to the moon, men going to space. Those of you who are boomers, who are old enough to remember the wide world of Disney, you know, in addition to fun stuff like Davy Crockett and Zorro and some of the other stuff that was on that show, they also would have nature documentaries and science. Wide World of Disney was kind of split between educational stuff and fun stuff. And this was definitely one of their educational ones where they were actively promoting the idea of space exploration. So all of that combined in the 1950s, along with just science fiction becoming so popular in general, to really popularize the idea of men traveling out into space. So one of the side effects of all of this popularization was you had a whole generation of young people who were graduating high school, going off to college in the 1950s. And as aeronautics and other sciences related to space exploration began to expand under government programs, there were new opportunities for young people to go into these fields. And many of them wound up working for NASA. Many of them wound up becoming scientists who contribute in one way or another to the development of the space program. It's one of the great unacknowledged powers of science fiction is that it has inspired multiple generations to go on to into the hard sciences. And beyond this organized effort to get people interested in space, it became baked into the culture where you had space toys and space books and science books. Science was starting to be promoted more. I remember I was in a library working there and going through the collection and found a wonderful world of Disney guide to the atom. There you go. Yeah, as I said, Disney was very much on the side of promoting education. That's probably why I watched it every week. My parents were teachers, so it probably required me to watch that show every week, knowing that I'd get something good out of it. But, you know, I probably enjoyed watching Zorro more than I did the nature documentaries. So then you had Sputnik, which happened in 1957, I believe, where the Russians beat us to space by launching the first satellite from Earth. I got to throw this in. Okay. Um, Original recordings of the Sputnik beep exist and have been uploaded and I will include a link to the recording so you can hear the actual sounds of Sputnik. Wasn't it such a signal that amateur radio enthusiasts could pick it up? Yes. So that was part of the scare, I guess, of Sputnik, was that your average ham radio operator would gather around their sets and listen to Sputnik as it went over the United States. Yeah, in a way, the Soviets were touching the whole world. Yeah, exactly. Something was going over our heads. It had such a huge impact. So all during this period that we were talking about, the early 1950s, where all these different people were trying to popularize the idea of space exploration, there was pushback. There were a lot of people who 
made the argument, well, why would we spend all this money to go to the moon or whatever when we need to solve these problems here on Earth? Or there were still people fighting back, saying space travel is too dangerous. You'll just wind up killing the astronauts. It's not achievable. The old, how can you spend money on this thing while there are still people starving argument right. comes up with everything. So there, there was resistance to the idea of having a space program. But Sputnik ended that. Once Sputnik happened, then the people who were in favor of a space program had a winning hand, and the United States shifted not only to begin massively investing in their own space program to try to catch up, which, by the way, it took them about six or seven years before they caught up with the Soviets. I remember hearing a story about Kennedy discussing with Von Braun what headline could we do? Can we do this first, that first, that first? And Von Braun kept saying, no, no, no. Can we hit, go to the moon first? And then he said, yeah, yeah, we, we, there's enough time yeah. for us to get there first. Exactly. So not only were we investing in a space program suddenly, but there was this push, big, big push all over schools in the United States to try to get kids to go into science and math. So that became a big change culturally in this country that what we now call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, yeah. there was a big push back then to get kids to follow that career path. And a lot of them did. So it, it was a good thing for the United States, and it probably led to all these wonderful innovations that came about as a corollary to the space program or elsewhere in the 1960s. All of the things that we take for granted now with our technology had its birth back in the 1950s following Sputnik when we had this push to get people into STEM careers. And you know, that reminds me, in the 70s, we would regularly get programs. Here are all the great things that this money we're spending on NASA brought us. They would always start out with Tang, which was not, <laughs> it was not inventive with the space program. It already existed. You know what, though? As a kid, I loved Tang. For whatever reason, my parents had these weird quirks, and one of them was that they looked down their nose at Tang for some reason. So I, I never got Tang at home. I would always be like, I'd go to a friend's house and do have an overnight. I think we went to the cabin up north one summer, and somebody brought along some Tang. And I was like, oh, I get to have Tang with my breakfast. And I, I don't know if there was any nutritional value whatsoever in Tang, but it was the glamour of drinking the drink that the astronauts drink. And I think that's exactly how they sold it. My parents had quirks, too. I know this is an aside, but you know when I had Fruit Loops for the first time in my late teens because I bought the box? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole digression that we won't go into. But there's entire areas of life that I was not privileged to as a child because my parents were teachers and they wanted to only f emphasize the educational aspects of life and the healthy things. Tang was one of those things that I almost missed out on no gi joe play with your cue oh no i no my dad loved war <laughs> movies so i had five gi joes so i think we've talked about that before so um i don't know if there's any further elements we can talk about about how science fiction popularized space travel advocated for space travel maybe one way to close it out is to return back to arthur c clark and talk about how he was a partner with stanley kubrick in development of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
As well as the faked moon landing videos. <laughs> yes. I don't know if Arthur C. Clarke was involved with the faked moon landing videos or not. But there was a book that I had when I was a teenager, The Making of 2001, which went into a lot of detail of how revolutionary that movie was in terms of just inventing new special effects technology. Arthur C. Clarke saying, here's what space travel would be like. And Kubrick being completely unlike your typical Hollywood director, producer, writer, who took everything that Clark suggested to him and put it in the movie, amplified it, expanded on it. There's actually one famous point where he shows one of the characters reading the instructions for a zero-gravity toilet. Oh, So they went to that level of detail (laughs) to come up with a set of instructions of how to use a zero-gravity toilet, put it in the movie briefly, and the famous scene right at the beginning with one of the astronauts jogging. Yeah, that, and the centrifuge. Yes, that blew people's minds at the time. Yeah, and that movie came out one year before the moon landing, when the Apollo program was really starting to take off. 1968 was also the year of Apollo 8, where they were the first ones to circle the moon, and they had that famous christmas eve broadcast from the moon where they had the picture of the earth rising above the moon and they read a passage from the bible and it was it was one of these world unifying moments you know one of the highlights of the space program on this mission one of the astronauts just as a little joking aside to nasa said well we now have proof that santa claus actually exists so now that is apparently a secret signal to NASA that they met some aliens. (laughs) Okay, whatever. Just to be clear, I do not believe that Stanley Kubrick filmed a fake moon landing. And neither do I. That was a joke. (laughs) Just to be clear. But I will say if someone was going to be talked into filming a fake moon landing by the United States government, it probably would be Stanley Kubrick. But it would have taken twice as long and cost twice as much exactly. as the actual moon landing. That's why I don't believe it happened, because it would have taken three years for him to get it done. All right, any other thoughts on uh, the space program or the influence of science fiction on it? Just that very often when you get interviews of people in technology, developing technology, and especially Astronauts. In, the, uh, yeah, in, the, in the space sciences, they very often refer to their interest being piqued by some science fiction material when they were younger. Star Trek. How many people have been influenced by the TV show Star Trek to go into the space program? Or yeah. the variations of you know, next generation or whatever. Uh, the Taser is named after a science fiction device. Oh, Taser. Tom A. Swift's electric rifle. Yes. I yes. remember it from the Tom Swift books. I don't remember him using it to subdue prisoners. But (laughs) (laughs) while yelling, don't resist, don't resist. Stop resisting, stop resisting. (laughs) One last little point. If you interviewed a wide swath of aerospace engineers and astronauts and asked them what popular media influenced you to become involved in the space program, many of them, most of them would say Star Trek. I don't think a lot of them would say Star Wars. Well, I've always made the argument that Star Trek is science fiction and Star Wars is basically fantasy. Yes. So those of you who are keeping score at home, Star Trek 1, Star Wars 0. Lord of the Rings, 0. 0. All right, that's it for episode 43. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. 
I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitzey. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.